Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. Hey, what's good, Unstackers? We are back this week with a special episode with Santiago Roal Santos, partner at Parify Capital. Parify has been investing in DeFi since 2018 and deployed capital into leading projects such as Compound, Aave, Uniswap, and Synthetics. But my conversation with Santiago is not your typical investor Q&A. We share a special conversation on his personal values, life philosophies, and unique playfulness mindset to better understand how he thinks as an investor. Santiago is much more than your average banker turned full-time investor, and you'll see why. I'm really excited for you to learn more about Santiago's kaleidoscopic worldview and perhaps pick up a life lesson or two. If this podcast resonates with you, please share with your friends and get the word out about Crypto Unstacked. Drop me a note on Twitter at Les Lambo, that's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0, to let me know your thoughts on this episode or requests for interesting topics you'd like to see covered on the show. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Santiago, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Hey, great. Let's see. Thanks for thanks for having me. Good to be here. Santiago, many people know you as a former banker, as well as a tech and healthcare investor. You're now a partner at Parify Capital, which is a DeFi-focused fund that's known for being early investors in DeFi. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited to chat with you today is because I think you're so much more than a banker turned full-time investor. I think that narrative's been taken care of already. And what I'm interested in exploring is your worldview and how you think, because I know through your writing, you think very deeply about a lot of things beyond crypto, and you sort of tie that into your experience with crypto today. I think this is the route from which we can better understand you as a crypto investor, and we can tie that into other things such as Parify's direction and strategy as a fund. How does that sound? Shall we dive in? Yeah, that sounds great. I'm excited. In prepping for this conversation, one of the things I've really enjoyed learning about is your kaleidoscopic worldview. Your medium says that you're a student of behavioral economics, game theory, and history. A lot of your writing is philosophical in a way as well, so I'd also just throw in student of philosophy. In one of your earlier posts, you wrote about your experience climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and relating that climb to some life lessons. And by the way, 
most people probably don't know that you're a mountain climber. I certainly didn't and, and think that's amazing. But in this reflection post, you talked about the difference between having a goal and having a value. And in your words, a goal is fixed and it sets an expectation, whereas a value sets the focus on the present as opposed to a future outcome, which you say is very important. I'd like to start off more broadly, Santiago, and get to understand what are some core values that you carry today? First of all, thank you for reading. I don't think a lot of people go to my Substack. I think for me, um, th- there's a common temptation, you know, come year end or starting the year, having very fixed objectives. Say, I want to achieve X or Y. There's that temptation because it's objective, it's tangible, it's measurable. And so it sort of appeals to that side of our desires. But I think values allow us to really be present and be also compassionate with ourselves and allow ourselves to observe what is going on and also strive compassionately to the best of our ability. Because there are so many things that fall outside of our control, especially in investing. You think that you control where a company is going, where an industry is going. And the reality is it's a false illusion. And it's this idea that we want to control as many things as possible. But once you let go of that, they fall into place and become easier and better to understand. And our ability to process information becomes, I think, better when we just sort of let go of things that we think we can control, but really don't. So I'd say like just removing as much as possible, having a fixed objective. And in climbing, you know, you say, oh, well, you can see the top and it's very tempting to do that. And if you read certain books like Everest accidents and like there's fascinating accounts of why accidents happen. And I think it's because people become fixated on a particular objective of climbing and reaching the summit. And to reach one summit, you know, you go to another one. And so you never truly enjoy it. So for me, I think I try to keep it simple and just say like strive compassion and and allow myself to be flexible in in that. And yeah. We tend to have a natural predisposition to set goals for ourselves. And it's ingrained in us from when we're really, really young in everything that we do, whether it be setting daily health goals, uh, monthly career goals, even new year goals. We're fixated on setting expectations for ourselves. But as we know, goals can be moving targets as it's binary, as you read about. Uh, Sometimes we meet expectations and sometimes we don't. And tying this into what you just said, having values is important because values don't necessarily change according to expectations. And and, and goals always change, right? Because if you attain one, you want to strive for something even higher, something even better. And you say it's important to live by your values rather than by setting goals, even though it might be counterintuitive to do that. So bring this into the context of investing. How do these values guide your mindset as an investor? And does it conflict in any way with your goal, I guess, of running a fund even though you yourself might not have one, but objectively speaking, right, as an investor running a fund, you are in the position to pick the winners, right? Especially for these earlier type bets. And you're tasked ultimately uh, to make and return money for your investors, if you have any. So how do you deal with having these values that don't change and are very long-term oriented, but needing to strive for these types of goals that people expect of you as an investor? Yeah. 
I think it's the uh, a duration of, of your vision of investing. Yes, you're right. We have a fiduciary responsibility to produce the best returns for our investors. I will say that every investor that is considering our fund, we tell them, look, this is a long journey. And the time preference of crypto is strange because this is a multi-decade transformation, perhaps the most important socioeconomic transformation of our time. And it touches so many different facets and it's attracting so many different people across multiple disciplines. But at the same time, you have 24-7 markets on very early stage technology. And so it's sort of a conflicting view, right? Because you, you have a ticker that is constantly telling you if you're right or wrong. But we tell investors, hey, look, it's not worth looking at your monthly capital account statement. You have to zoom out and say, does this matter? Is this a transformation of finance? Is this a true lasting technology? And if the answer is yes, then, then yes, become an investor in our fund. And I think going back to values, look, as a climber, you could have a goal of, hey, I want to reach the top of Everest. That is a particular goal, right? You will perhaps take unnecessary risks. You might get there. And so you might accomplish that goal, but you might take unnecessary risks to get there or not, right? At the same time, a value, a principle might be, I want to be the best climber to the best of my ability. And that might involve you saying, hey, you know what? Today is not the day to climb because the weather is not right, because there's a lot of traffic in the mountain, because I just don't feel right. And I think as an investor, that's the hardest thing to do. There are times where you have just have to say no. And in crypto and in investing in general, there are hard times, right? Because you say that this thing probably will make money. And there are times where it's just not aligned with your values. And it's important to walk away. And it's important to know when to walk away. And just being at peace with the fact that you're not going to catch them all, right? It's just temptation of Pokemon, right? You're not going to catch them all. It's important to zoom out. We're 10 years into this transformation. It is very early. I think Lindy effect is something that is very powerful in crypto, in cryptography, but also in investing. I think in this asset class, what we strive to do is live to see the day where this technology really comes to being, really goes mainstream and transforms the financial infrastructure as it relates to DeFi and what we're investing in. And that's going to take time. So the best that we can do is find people that are aligned, that are in it for long term and provide them with resources, capital, support, and be there in good and bad times, and especially in bad times. And I think everything is nice and dandy when there's no clouds, there's no rain, there's no snow, but be there when rain comes and when the storm hits, that's where it matters. And that's where I think in the darkest times of this industry, there's been every day, you know, there's drama. And I think it's just important to maintain that level of composure because I think a lot of the problems in this industry is infighting. Uh, and I think it's important to just zoom out and say, hey, look, the real battle is outside. I, I wish there would be more of that. But unfortunately, you know, greed sometimes gets in the way, but that's fine. That, that's true of any market. That's human psychology. And so just understanding that too, it doesn't bother me. Just you observe it. It's transparent. So you observe it perhaps in a, in a clearer sight. A lot of the most successful investors, I think, in this space prioritize being long-term oriented, right? It's the only way to sustain through all of these mini bull and bear markets. A key aspect of investing, I find, apart from understanding what your values are, is mindset. And a blog post that you wrote about, it talks about the importance of adapting a playfulness mindset, which definitely doesn't get talked about Um especially in more of the corporate world. You talk about how over the years working as a banker, you somehow lost this inner jester 
And for our audience, a jester, Santiago describes, is being a universal character of a fool or a joker. How has being involved in a crazy industry like crypto and specifically DeFi in the case of Parify, sort of rekindling this playfulness ethos in you? Yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting. Um, it's important to have fun in this journey. You know, I think sometimes we tend to correlate our success with our seriousness. So I'm working hard, and I'm uh, I'm very serious. And you know, I think there's a difference. You know, you can be you know enjoy the process and enjoy the journey, and and bring that energy to people within the industry, but also share the vision of crypto with others. And it's just important to have fun. And and I think over time, you know, I think. You, you grow up too quickly and it certainly happened to me when I was like a JP Morgan, like I have to just be a rock. And, you know, I think you, you look back and you say, well, do I need to do that? Um, and so, you know, there's a difference between being a clown and being a gesture, I think is what I'm trying to say. Uh, being a clown is you're not taken seriously, but I think having a playfulness element, I think goes back to this idea that you don't control things and you just put things in perspective, right? You're able to laugh at your mistakes. Look, I think that, as any investor, just investing involves making a lot of mistakes. And I think in this industry, you don't need to be right all the time. In fact, I think you need to be very right about one or two or three things. And a lot of it's luck. Not everything is hard work. The best that I think I can do and we can do as, as investing in Parify is keep our eyes open, uh, be a positive role in the community, being uh, bring sort of the vision, the excitement of the industry to others and share that vision and enjoy that process. I, I really like Naval, I think once said it, I mean, he's a prolific angel investor. He said, look, if you're at peace of being an investor and if none of this works out, would it have been worthwhile? And I think that's something that I ask myself constantly when I think of, well, everyone has a big opportunity cost of being in crypto. They're very talented developers. They could be working at Stripe or some hot Web2 startup, but they've decided to be in crypto for some reason. I tend to believe that most people are here because at some point they realize where can I be the most relevant and apply my skill set to truly making a change in this world. And look, I don't mean to sound like Gandhi-esque, but I truly think that that is the beauty of open source. I think at some point people wake up and say, look, it goes beyond, it extends beyond accumulating wealth. And it's really, how can I be the most relevant in my discipline, in my field? At least for me, that's where crypto really touches a nerve. As an extension of what you just said, you know, not taking yourself too seriously is a way to also manage emotions which is key <laughs> to investing when there's a trading component as well, right? Which seems to be a common structure for a lot of the newer VC funds in the space. They say we're part hedge fund and, you know, part venture. And so we get access to short-term liquidity that way, but we are also long-term oriented and we can make longer-term bets. What do you think about that in terms of, you know, managing not so much your day-to-day -day emotions, but perhaps these sort of cyclical emotions being in a space like crypto? Yeah, it's a new paradigm, right? I mean, I think crypto forces you to be a venture capitalist and high-frequency trader and tempts you with both. You, know, you wake up one day and you have volatility like any other, like no other market. And so, yeah, you know, I think the best that we, at least that I've learned over the years is really just focus on developing a long-term thesis and also being adaptable to that thesis itself. You know, we go into an investment saying, okay, well, here's our thesis about project X. We think that 
thematically, this is going to be a big space called NFTs. We think that that's going to be big as an example. Well, let's go out and find the best people that are building and, and back them. It goes back to this, what's your investment horizon? And, and also being, being adaptable, because one of the things that this industry allows you to do is, unlike venture, is place multiple bets. And also, venture has you know, a batting average where you make 10 investments, probably five will go to zero, three will you know, return one or two X, and then it's one or two that probably will return your fund. Crypto is quite different because it's very unlikely if you manage your portfolio well that investments will go to zero, right? The compounding effects of that are quite powerful because it gives you the ability to construct a portfolio where you can really compound and capture alpha in a meaningful way, whether it be thematically a category or a particular investment in company X or Y. But yeah, just going back to that point, like, you know, I think prices can be a little bit distracting at times. It is important. I think prices is, is indicative. I think the market is, is smart in, in some ways, but sometimes there is a disconnect in the market. And so for us, the best that we can do is fundamentally think about is there a product market fit here? Is this a long lasting category? Is there going to be value here? And then find the best operators to execute on that. A lot of the things that are still unclear of this industry is the defensibility of open source networks. And I think one of the things that we found to be true are backing the best entrepreneurs that can attract the best communities and really build that. Because I think communities are, are harder to replicate, are harder to fork. Liquidity is sort of a transient moat, as we've observed with sushi and vampire attacks. But Definitely something like Wi-Fi has a very powerful community. It goes back to where fundamentally I think in open source, where everything is forkable, the code is available for everyone. People align themselves with projects that share their, again, their, their principles or their, that are aligned with their values, whether it be a leader like Andre or Vitalik or a ethos of Bitcoin as a replacement to the existing monetary regime. So that's how, um, how I think about it. Yeah. On your last point there about forking, right? There's two camps, one who think that all forks are cannibalistic and those who think that no, forks can also be synergistic as well. Which camp do you tend to fall into or does it really differ depending on the type of protocol? Yeah, by and large, I think it, it depends. But um, historically, I mean, the president would say like forks kind of don't matter that much. You look at the Bitcoin forks, Bitcoin remains king, but there's other networks that have created a lot of value. Like it can be test nets for Bitcoin or Ethereum, like Ethereum Classic. Zooming out a little bit, we tend to think a lot in, in win-lose situations. Fundamentally, I think a lot of things that we think that are win-lose are win-win. Uh, look at Uniswap with the Sushi Saga. There was a Sushi fork, a lot of liquidity migrated over to Sushi. But net-net, I mean, you look at both protocols and, and the result of that was more liquidity. Uniswap now has more liquidity even pre the Uniswap token launch. And so it's interesting. Sometimes forks can bring more attention to a particular space like AMMs and, and suck liquidity away from other pockets and bring more attention to, to crypto. And so, yeah, it goes back to this point. I, I think like Sometimes we're too focused and fixated on, on, on what's happening in our small microcosm called DeFi. The reality is very few people outside of, of DeFi really know what the true, it's hard to keep up with the space. We're beginning to scratch the surface. And I think sometimes forks can bring attention to the space and that's net positive. Hey, Unstackers, I wanted to let you know that Amber Group has just rolled out our new mobile app. The Amber app is designed to help you achieve optimal investment returns through market-leading interest rate products, yield enhancement, and risk management tools, all in one application. Right now, when you refer a friend, you can earn 30% of your friend's trading fees and 10% of your friend's interest earnings. Your friend will also earn 10% extra interest. Plus, 
new Amber App users are able to earn 16% APR on select Bitcoin and Ethereum time deposits. Invite your friends and start earning rewards together. Amber is your gateway to crypto finance. Download the Amber app and select Apple and Android app stores today. In one of your articles, you talk about crypto being an O-ring industry. And in layman terms, let me just kind of put this in context for our audience. Economist Michael Kramer set out this O-ring theory of economic development, which talks about how in production, especially for processes that involve a lot of tasks that are very complex, like building a rocket ship, for example, which is where this term O-ring is borrowed from, the skill levels of everyone involved in building this thing becomes really important, right? And ultimately, when the cog and wheel works together in an O-ring industry, what this translates into is this type of phenomenon where we see talent begetting talent and creating higher productivity and sort of applying this concept more broadly as we experience this sort of increasing globalization in the world, our interdependencies with each other grow, right? And so you write about how we can attribute the success of an O-ring industry alongside all the advancements that we see in peripheral sectors that might impact this industry. But for some industries, it's also this very dependency that makes them vulnerable to certain bottlenecks. And you believe crypto is one example of this. So what are the characteristics of crypto that qualifies it as an O-ring industry? And what bottlenecks are challenging your assumption of this? Yeah, it, it's a, and, and by the way, you described it probably better than I wrote this O-ring concept. Uh, you're right. I mean, crypto has a lot of interdependencies. And, and like a rocket ship, everything needs to function in harmony. And even a small failure of a component that is seemingly low level, like a plastic ring, which caused the Challenger accident. And, and Richard Feynman discovered this. And he's like, this is what caused a whole rocket ship to to blow up. And, you know, I think the positive side of that is is when industries like building a rocket ship or crypto, cryptography requires the best talent. And certainly I think we see that that's one of the, I think one of the true novelties of this industry of generally open source networks. They attract, I think the, the smartest guys in the room uh, and the smartest people. And collectively the compounding effects of having people from multidisciplinaries. I mean, think of crypto touches, cryptography, security research, computation, just general game theory, economics, behavioral economics, statistics, you know, simulations like anthropology, so many different fields. And I'm probably missing 10 or 15. And it's attracting a lot of talent. I I think it's attracting really high caliber talent. And and the quality of the talent has gone up over the years, at least what I've observed since I started in the space. You're starting to see now the smartest engineers at some of the best startups join crypto. That is one of the more powerful paradigm shifts. You know, I think we've gone from this industrial revolution concept of work, everyone goes nine to five to an office. And, And certainly with COVID, I think it's been really shattering that industrial revolution concept and into, hey, well, let's, let's coalesce around ideas and values and, and organize in different ways that transcend physical boundaries and transcend companies and more so work towards a common objective. And I think with the internet, with transportation, certainly not now, but particularly with the internet, I think we're in a very interesting sort of transition 
and crypto is at the heart of that. And so there is a lot of interdependencies, which goes to this idea of an O-ring, right? It's sort of a very steep curve. And, and the way I would describe it is you need the 0.1% of talent for this to function. Like you can't have a 75 percentile engineer work on SpaceX. It's just not going to cut it, right? You need the best and brightest. And one of the things that I just allows me to kind of maintain perspective is for me, we tend to focus too much on price. Perhaps the best barometer in this space is the caliber of human talent. And that keeps going up. And the compounding effects of that are, are quite high. And, and so price in some respects is just noise. That to me continues to be one of the more powerful things of crypto. And also this idea that you know, Silicon Valley state of mind, you know, Silicon Valley, not too long ago, was just a field of over orchards. And what really became Silicon Valley was this idea of creating uh, Stanford and, and William Shockley coming here and creating semiconductor industry. And that really opened up really waves of innovation, right? Semiconductors allowed for computers and computers then allowed for the internet and then the internet allowed for smartphones and a number of cascading innovations. And I think we're very early in this game of, of crypto. It really transforms so many different facets, not just money, but also how we organize as a society and how we can interact with each other. I don't think we've seen the full extent of that. I think we're just beginning to really scratch the surface. Let's go deeper in that and talk more about the why of all this, right? Parify chose to focus on DeFi really early on. So can you walk us through your team's initial thinking about focusing on DeFi so many years ago? Yeah, um, um you know, I think for, for us is, uh, you know, my partner Ben and I have been investing in crypto since, since 2012. And, and look, we, we have a whole section of, of our like investor deck where we say lessons learned, because I think we've made a lot of mistakes over the years. The result of that is really refining our thesis of, of how we invest in the space, how we think about structuring a portfolio. You know, my background's in finance. My partner Ben also is in finance. Going to, to the heart of it, the why, I think everyone can agree that the finance is just sort of broken. And there was a reason why the internet didn't really solve moving money. Uh, the same way that you move information. You need to still rely on a trusted middleman. And that is sort of the common sin of the internet, as Mark Andreessen calls it. And so I think like crypto now uniquely enables that. When we think about DeFi today, certainly had a, some run up and, and you're, as you rightly point out, there, there's been more attention called to it. But for us, I mean, we started looking at some of these networks and we're saying, hey, look, DeFi as a category has the most amount of product market fit, um, traction, innovation, smartest, probably the smartest teams that we meet are in DeFi. And it has like high growth and earnings. This is not vaporware. This is not technology that might be certainly applicable like five, 10 years down the road. I'm not dismissive of that. I'm just from an investor standpoint, I'm just saying I have more conviction investing in something like Uniswap that is cranking out volume and earnings more so than Coinbase. And I'm looking at that and it's hard to overlook, you know, and my margin of safety is quite high when I say, look, it's a team of five people that have Hayden and, and a few others have developed this novel concept of an AMM, initially proposed by Vitalik, took that and built it. And they have no overhead. They uh, transcend sort of this like jurisdictional overview and, and regulation and, uh, and like, um, it's just global permissionless, tapping into global permissionless pools of capital. And, and it's quite powerful. I mean, these networks are, it's like, it's like you built a, a, a visa-like network in less than a year. Uh, with like a fraction of the labor force and you're growing uh, at high growth and profitable. I mean, th these are just, uh, when we look at that, we'll say, you know, it's not that we don't allow ourselves to think that there are other use cases beyond just pure DeFi, but I think it's, it's, it's hard to overlook and, and there's a disconnect, right? I mean, you look at DeFi as an entire percentage of market cap of cryptos is less than 5%. Um, 
and we just say something's got to give, right? I mean, like uh, there are some ghost layer ones that just are sitting there in, in really empty blocks. And meanwhile, you have DeFi protocols that um, got spun off the ground and, and very quickly are tapping into this composable universe that uh, going back to this overing theory, a new entrant into DeFi creates more value overall. Um, you know, compound is very complementary to maker and Aave is complementary to compound and maker. And so the, the entrance of a new player, going back to this win-win concept, creates more value in this economy, creates more value to the consumer. Uh, are we there yet for mainstream adoption? There are certain structural limitations, uh, but, but I think that's the beauty of transformational technology. You know, it, it will, we're, I don't think we're far away from state of the world where people just interact with DeFi in a way that they don't even care or understand how it works. The same with the, the internet. HTTPS. I mean, no, no one understands uh, how a car works, how a bicycle works, how the internet works. They just use it because it provides that 10x better experience. And I think we're quite excited to see people interact with DeFi without even knowing that they're interacting with DeFi. They're just earning a higher interest rate on their savings. And that's what really matters. And, and that's, I think, the power of... And by the way, I think DeFi as a whole, because sometimes we get asked by potential investors, like, well, don't you think DeFi is quite siloed? It's quite narrow, as, as an asset class will say. Well, I mean, how do we define DeFi? DeFi for us is transfer of value, not just crypto assets and commodities and stocks or however we think about Wall Street as we know it. But value takes in a whole new meaning when you think about digital scarcity that is uniquely, like crypto single-handedly created the ability to do digital scarcity. I, I think the markets and the economies that can, can come out of that, NFTs, gaming, are massive. We haven't seen the full extent of that. I think, again, we're it's so exciting because I think we're scratching the surface of, of what is possible here. So when you're talking with either potential investors or your existing set of investors, do you find yourself needing to break down by primitives? Do you find that helpful to build a more holistic narrative about DeFi? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's interesting because sometimes we talk to people that are quite young and, and don't get it. And other times we're talking to a retired former bond trader. And, and as soon as we explain protocol X or Y, he gets it because he's like, God, I just wish that this existed for the last 40 years or like, you know, a banker, like, oh my God. Yeah, I, I can sympathize with that because I've had this problem closing a transaction or some of the got burned, the financial crisis, like, oh yeah, I wish that, uh, CMBSs were transparent, yet they were off balance sheet items. I could never price risk well. And this is quite fascinating. And so it's interesting because you never really know. I mean, we're constantly talking to large asset managers and sovereign wealth funds and really a host of different types of, of, of types of investors that get interested in crypto for X or Y. I don't have a perfect answer for that. I, I do think that it's important to, our best advice to them is to verify one of the things that we do, um, are, we're power users of networks. So we're actually using these networks on a day-to-day -day basis. We're providing a lot of liquidity to these networks. And that informs our thesis of what needs to be built, of gaps in the market, of, of things that are gaining traction. Uh, and ultimately, we, you know, in the time that I've just been rambling, I could have opened a CDP and maker. And that's powerful. You know, and I think when we, when we, I always say that to someone's like, in, in this time frame, I could have used this crypto, crypto asset and put it in a contract and taken out a loan and die. And they're like, well, what's this die thing? You, you know, you could swap die view at DC, put it in Coinbase and then take it back to Chase or Bank of America or Wells Fargo or Barclays or whatever. And I think that's when people really start getting it, right? And it goes back to this idea, 
Uh, you know, the, very few people are really getting into in the weeds of how these protocols work. And there is a lot of work at the uh, layer of abstraction, which is making these protocols and products more usable. Um, and I think that that's where we really just, sometimes we open up a, you know, and, and walk people through an application, right? Or, or like walking them through like a, a demo sort of. And that's where, that's where they really start getting it, right? That's where it's hard to say, okay, compare that with weeks of submitting sensitive information and getting approved by the bank. For us, I mean, DeFi is, is pretty remarkable that you have a system where you're constantly able to price risk way more efficiently. Why? Because everything's on chain. You're able to look at what's a collateralization ratio of Maker or Aave or Synthetics and 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 that that in and of itself allows you to build so many different primitives like price risk in a more in a more dynamic way um and, and uh and i think it's uh, a lot so so anyways going back to your question there's different things that people the aha moment is quite different for uh, many different people. And I, I couldn't say it's like a predictable pattern, which I think speaks to the vastness of what, how this technology can really transform many different types of applications just within DeFi. Yeah, forget about everything else, but just within DeFi, there's all different kinds of sort of like use cases. Extending the conversation on DeFi primitives, a missing DeFi Lego that you've talked about more recently is tokenized debt instruments. And you guys have invested in a recent project called Barnbridge. And according to their Medium post, they're a cross-platform protocol for tokenizing risk, which I think is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> but can you talk about what new credit primitive Barnbridge is building and what problem they're trying to solve? Yeah, definitely. Um, this is sort of more of a classic example of bringing what exists in, in traditional finance and porting it over to DeFi and pricing it perhaps more efficiently. So in this idea of you have different tranches of debt. So right now, for instance, you have all these different loans in Maker or all these different loans in, in Compound or, or Aave. But this idea to break up a, a particular loan and have different types of payouts, right? You have a senior tranche, you have a mezzanine tranche, you have a junior tranche with different varying rates based on risk based on a waterfall of payouts. And, and I think this allows for the creation of different types of debt instruments where you can earn higher yield by taking an incremental risk. One of the things that we're looking at is tokenization of real world assets. Say that you have, I don't know, a, a company that does certain, certain machinery and they have all these assets in their balance sheet. Uh, and so you could issue a bond on the blockchain and then you could say, okay, well, the senior tranche is secured by all the different machinery that this company has, the inventory, the accounts receivable. So like it's, it's things that you can liquidate and get value. And so you sort of probabilistically say, hey, I'm going to be paid out probably 99 cents on the dollar. Uh, in a worst case scenario, I'll probably recoup my principal, right? And it won't be in default. And then there's other people that say, okay, well, I'm willing to take a bet more like take incremental level of risk and get a higher yield. You would say, well, what's the whole point of this, right? I mean, it opens up the ability to tokenize and tranche up debt in, in an interesting way. And it attracts different kinds of market participants, right? I think of hedge funds or, or debt investors that might want to get an incremental yield, right? I mean, it's a massive market in traditional finance. And it, going back to this idea that you're able to price risk dynamically and more efficiently. Now you compare that with a financial crisis, I'll say, the issue was not so much that like mortgages are, are bad, right? Or, or like packaging up different mortgages was bad per se. I think the idea was that you didn't have transparency into the system. You know, you didn't have uh, this idea of, of 
and, and a problem of incentives or rating agencies were rating these AAA and you had the correlation factor between mortgages and default rates wrong and, and no one could really understand the, the quantum of debt that was outstanding. And lo and behold, I think there was, the problem was transparency and without transparency, you're not able to price things well. And I think there's an asymmetry of information that exists in traditional finance that is being optimized in, in, in DeFi because it's fully transparent. It's on chain, right? And so I think with the advent of, of more robust Oracle feeds and, and, and the whole infrastructure around DeFi will allow us to tokenize that measure and price risk in a more dynamic way. And, and I think that's where things get really interesting because you're attracting large pools of capital that want to capture higher yield. And especially in a world where you have record low interest rates across the world. And so right now, DeFi is probably composed of diehard hobbyists, but where you think about, hey, how can we bring in really large players into, into DeFi? And I think this is one example of where it's a product that people understand. And I think we'll continue to attract larger pools of capital. So in the meantime, though, when there isn't this large pool of capital are the retail investors that are currently in DeFi able to use BarnBridge for risk management? Like, is is that the low-hanging fruit or are they really building for these bigger pools of capital down the line? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Like, uh, my distinction here is I don't like this distinction of whale, non-whale or, or institutional non-institution. Like, the beauty of crypto is some of the smartest, more sophisticated investors in crypto are, are technologists. And so, so the, the short answer is, I don't necessarily think it's just a product for large hedge funds or institutional players. This is something that I think people can understand and say, hey, look, you're buying a, a, a bond instrument that pays out a 5% interest rate, but it's secured by this collateral. You have this junior bond that is under collateralized, but uh, there is some reputation score of this company. And so in an event of a hack or what have you, you know, probabilistically you might earn 65 cents on the dollar, right? And so I think it's just a, an interesting idea where in this case, there might be a very sophisticated engineer that understands how a particular company, crypto or non-crypto works and has a view on how risky the asset is and is able to price and invest in a different type of bond, right? And you might say, you know what, it's, it's mispriced. You know, like this bond is trading at 65 cents on the, on the dollar. I think this company actually has the ability to pay out claims or what have you. And so I think like it democratizes the playing field. For traditional finance, you know, you need to have a large balance sheet, a prime brokerage account, all these different things in order to actually get exposure to these asset classes, which is quite unfair in my opinion. This sort of idea of like, what is a accredited investor, institutional investor, uh, only the big boys can play in, in, in the poker table. I think that that kind of largely goes away because there's very smart people in this space that are now have access to these sophisticated investment products. Now, it's not for everyone, like 100%. And one of the things that we push our portfolio companies is self-police, understand that like sometimes people don't fully appreciate the risks and it's important to have like buyer beware when they're interacting with these protocols or buying some of these instruments or interacting with flash loans or options or leverage trading and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Another project that you recently invested in is Bounce.Finance. And in their post introducing the project, the founder said something that I found very interesting, which is that he's inspired by Y Earn's 5NO design, N-O, which has no founder allocation, no premise, no partnership allocation, no ICO, and no advisor tokens. I thought this was a really clever way to label this sort of tactic of how people are coming up with new protocols and structuring that. 
So can you talk about what bounce.finances bring to DeFi? What does a world with bounce look like? Yeah, bounce is one of those products. I've known Chandler for, for quite some time and I was really excited when I saw it. It was just one of those products that you see and you're like, God, yeah, it's almost obvious it should have existed by now. And it's very simplistic. It allows you to like bid for assets in a very sim- simplistic way. And, and you have s- certain features like you might say, hey, I want to sell 100 ETH. And you might put this at a very specific price. If there's a bidder, then it clears, right? And there's other sort of features that you allow, like you can make it a private bid and you can invite certain people. You can have a whitelisted auction. They're now extending into NFTs, which I think is quite exciting, where they will do kind of Dutch auctions or English auctions on NFTs. I think that's quite interesting when you look at some of the NFT platforms like OpenSea and Rarible. And it seems to me like the pricing of those NFTs is quite uh, suboptimal. Uh, you're constantly seeing this flipping activity. And whereas, um, and, and the creator only takes 10%, which it, look is better than probably Christie's and Sotheby's or like Ticketmaster, if you will, like creators are getting compensated higher. Uh, in, interacting with these protocols. But nonetheless, I think you could use a better price discovery on some of these assets out of the gate, right? And so Bounce is very simplistically is creating the ability to price assets in a very interesting way and and clear some of these OTC transactions just on chain and sometimes privately, sometimes not. And some like a time component, there's just different sort of parameters and degrees of freedom that you can toy around with. But very simple. And when I saw it, I'm like, it almost was a head scratcher where I said, oh, this probably should have existed by now. Like it's totally different. Like AMMs are like very dynamic and like very fascinating what you can do with AMMs. But this is sort of tried, true, works. And, and they just built a really slick kind of killer product. And so we, we love seeing that, you know, and it had a great usage and is getting great traction. So we're excited about that. Awesome. Yeah, I would love to understand your thesis around NFTs because for anyone going into crypto Twitter, there is this joke that everyone is now focused on NFTs and seems to be experts on NFTs. I mean, are you a curator? And is this part of the reason why you're interested in kind of getting into NFTs? Or what's the genesis of your interest here? Yeah, no, I'm not a curator. I mean, I I can appreciate art. Uh, I can appreciate quality work. Uh, I, I don't have an edge there or like I just what excites me about NFTs is that I think it goes beyond just art or collectibles. I mean, these are massive markets, right? And, and I think uh, a lot of times, uh, I, I even think I'm probably underestimating how big these markets can really be. Where I really started looking into it was when uh, Y Aaron created Y Insurance. So we're investors in, in Nexus. For quite a bit of time, we were trying to understand how cover insurance cover got priced. And it was sort of like a black box mechanism where the team kind of constructed the pricing algorithm and actuary models came up with a price for cover. What was interesting is why earn took certain insurance contracts, say that you have insurance cover for 100 ETH uh, for six months on um, compound. So say if compound were to blow up and you have 100 ETH deposited in compound, you get back your 100 ETH. Um, and you pay, I don't know, 3% of principal on that. You say, well, how do we know 2% is actually fairly priced or not? And it was unclear for us for quite a bit of time. But what Wiren did was it tokenized that specific insurance contract or, 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 or cover and tokenized it, created an NFT on it. And with that creator, was it created effectively a secondary market to be able to trade that specific contract on Nexus, which was a liquid, by creating an NFT. And I think that was fascinating because it, it ended up being a, a better, it, it one, create a secondary market for an illiquid instrument. Second, it also creates better price discovery that feeds back, it's implicitly an Oracle feed for Nexus cover. Um, and so 
this idea, I don't know where it will go, but it was interesting to create liquidity in a secondary market and of a rather illiquid asset and then becoming an Oracle in and of itself, at least for insurance contracts. To me, that was, I think that's uh, quite powerful. Uh, I don't know how else this can be applied beyond just insurance cover, for instance, but uh, that really got me excited when I saw that. They tokenized it on Rarible or some other platform? I think so, yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah, it was on Rarible. They, they took specific specific contracts and people could, you, by the way, you you could slice it up and people can buy. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, I think it was on Rarible uh, where, where they did this. Yeah, it was quite interesting. Yeah, because sometimes we just think of NFTs as like, Oh, crypto kitties. No, this is like actually an insurance contract that was tokenized to be freely tradable. And that to me was quite exciting. Yeah. 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 I'll have to look into that. But as we wrap up, I just have one last question for you. You said something before that is we tend to overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. So I would love to know what's a development in crypto that you overestimated and you believe still needs time to play out and one change that you've underestimated and has taken you by surprise and it's come much more quickly than you thought it would hmm, great question it was bill gates who said that i think when he was developing microsoft uh, as released to crypto you know going back since i guess 2012 I would have thought that by now, one of the things that I probably overestimated was how quickly enterprises would adopt this technology, particularly in healthcare, uh, where you have a big problem of like supply chain provenance. There's a lot of counterfeit along the supply chain for our pharmaceuticals. And proving the tagging provenance of, of, of things is, is very valuable. And I would have thought by now that some like XM chain or some of these other projects that were like, you know, pre- uh, 2017 era, I, I would have thought by now that there would have been a bigger, a bigger push in that direction. Because I do think that there is a lot of value in being able to provably say, hey, and verify the authenticity of something. Uh, and I think that's quite powerful. I, I would have thought by now that that would have gained much, much more traction. So perhaps I would I overestimated the potential or the interest of enterprises in really applying this technology. Uh, where I've come to terms now is probably this technology will be kind of like the internet, like hobbyists on the fringes. And, and I think DeFi is, is bridging that gap. And, and there's a lot of bridges being created now between traditional finance and, and DeFi. And, and I think that's uh, quite exciting. So that's one thing that I've overestimated, probably the enterprise interest in, in adopting crypto blockchain technology, if you will. Uh, I think a lot of it was this pilot, death by a thousand pilots. It was not truly a commitment to deploy this technology, kind of like the innovator's dilemma. Where I've probably underestimated my view is um, really the power of open source networks. Um, I, I think, I mean, I was investing in open source before crypto and, and this was a time where it was unclear how things would be monetized. And I think where I come to terms now is sometimes you have to make a leap and understand or believe that when there's underlying demand in a network, in a product, in a community, there is value that will come out of that. And it's hard because as a traditional kind of investor, you're looking at cash flow and these metrics. And, and sometimes I think I've underestimated the power, the goodwill of communities to create value and, and long lasting value uh, because it's hard to place a particular value on that. And, and it's uh, sort of left brain, right brain. But yeah, I think that's something that I, I continue to be amazed by and it, but I've certainly underestimated how powerful that could be. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, Santiago, I mean, I really love this conversation. I want everyone to hear about it. How can they connect with you? I know you're on Twitter a lot. So can you give us your handle there and then any other medium that you're pretty active on? Yeah, mostly Twitter, crypto Twitter at, at Santiago Roel. Uh, you can find me there, drop me a, a tweet and uh, love to engage and carry the conversation there. Otherwise, I sometimes occasionally write. I haven't done that as of late, but I, I, I do enjoy it. So if you have something for me to read or have a recommendation, drop me a line and but mostly Twitter. Yeah, that's where I live. Great. Well, thanks so much for hopping on the show on Crypto Unstacked and look forward to bringing you on again very soon. Yeah. Really enjoyed the conversation, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me here. And uh, yeah, looking forward to future conversations. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Also check out our Crypto Unstacked YouTube channel. I'll provide details in the show notes. Until next time, take care, Unstackers, and see you at the next episode.